All right. Um, so the, 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 the passage, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's 1 John chapter 2. Um, we start at chapter 2, verse 28, and then go into the first uh, section of chapter 3. So it's 2, 28 through 3, 10. Um, so we've been talking several weeks now um, that, um, that John is writing this letter to, he's in his old age, he's, uh, he, he's, he's, he's had this, uh, this audience uh, as kind of his spiritual children for a long time. Um, and so now old man John, in his spiritual wisdom, the same John that wrote the New Testament, or wrote the, uh, the, the New Testament um, uh, gospel uh, that bears his name, the same John is writing his spiritual children, and he's addressing, uh, he's addressing one of the most dangerous heresies uh, of the first, uh, first three centuries, actually. Um, and we've talked in the past about um, that heresy, uh, later known as Gnosticism. Um, and, and essentially, Gnostics taught, um, if, if we compress it down to a nutshell, Gnostics taught that matter was inherently evil and the spirit was good. And so as a result of that teaching, uh, the Gnostics taught that Jesus only appeared to be human because the flesh, the body, is matter. And how could, how could Jesus, uh, Jesus is sinless, and so Jesus only appeared to be human. Um, as a result of this teaching, um, as well, some Gnostics uh, advocate an aestheticism, so, you know, like a self, uh, self-mutilation. Um, now, that actually comes along more in later Gnosticism uh, on, down, on down the road. Um, what is more prevalent in the New Testament uh, was that a lot of the Gnostics taught that sin committed in the body, it really, had, it really, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, so, sin committed in the body now had no uh, connection or effect on the spirit, was the teaching. Um, Sid committed in our physical body now uh, was not only permissible, it was kind of inevitable. Uh, you know, we're still in the flesh, we're still in the body, and so, you know, we can't really expect while we're in the body to stop sinning, to not sin, to do anything other than sin. Um, and, and to that heresy, John is writing this epistle for this specific circumstance. You can see it very directly in chapter 3, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Right? So, with that, we're going to dive in. Do not, lead you, do, not lead, do not let anyone lead you astray. How are, how are we, how are they, how are we led astray? Um, so, John is saying, let no one cause you to wander. Let no one lead you astray. Don't let anyone move you from the teachings in this book. Don't let anyone convince you that Christians won't grow in righteousness. Don't let anyone teach you that Christians don't have to grow in righteousness. Um, Again, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Um, but that piece is followed by, um, did you notice the last half of that verse? It's followed by an incredible purpose, uh, uh, promise, rather. Um, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who, practice, who practices righteousness is righteous, just as, to the degree that, or in as much as, 
Jesus is righteous. If you practice any righteousness at all, the one who practices righteousness has the same degree just as Jesus has righteousness. John is saying that whoever has the status of righteous practices righteous just as Jesus is righteous. He doesn't say he who practices righteousness is righteous. Sorry. He doesn't say he who practices righteousness becomes one with a righteous status. Okay? So this whole first part of the sermon, let me just pause for a second. This whole first part of the sermon is um, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult and the most, the most difficult part of, uh, of being a teacher of the Bible is delineating these pieces. So bear with me for about five minutes as we go through and let's, and let's focus on really carefully uh, what John is saying here. Let me read it again. John is not saying that he who practices righteousness becomes one with a righteous status. We do not have, we do not achieve our righteous status by practicing righteousness. He does say, however, that he, that anyone who practices righteousness is already righteous. Let me say it another way. He he doesn't say that some Christians who are righteous in Jesus will practice righteousness. He says, whoever practices righteousness has already achieved righteousness in Jesus. John is saying to his believers, he's saying to us as believers, do not let anyone cause you to wander from these two realities. You are declared righteous before you begin practicing righteousness. And all of those who are declared righteous practice righteousness. So you just have to trust me on this. My job would be a lot easier if I could just teach one of these truths. If I could just teach either that you don't have to practice righteousness or that you do have to practice not practice righteousness, my, my job would be a lot, um, a, a lot more simple. But, but the Bible is fairly clear and fairly consistent. It is truth that you don't have to practice righteousness to be declared righteous. In fact, you can't be declared righteous if you keep on trying to practice righteousness in an attempt to earn your righteousness. But it is also true that you do have to practice righteousness to have confidence in your faith by which you have been declared righteous. Don't you wish you could just pick one? Listen, it's, it's very popular and it's very easy to only preach, to only teach, to only discuss one of these realities. Some uh, will teach that while we are declared righteous by our faith, in order to remain in a state of righteousness, we must earn it through our continual gratitude, through our continual heart attitude, uh, through our works. In other words, some preach um, that we are saved by faith, but we are sanctified, 
and we only remain in faith by our effort. And the Bible is clear. That is absolutely incorrect. On the other hand, there are others who preach and who teach that because we have been declared righteous because of Jesus by faith, now we can do no wrong. It's as uh, you know, it, it's it's the the stereotypical you know two dozen uh, you know movies and TV shows you've seen about the stereotypical spoiled rich uh, rich little child, right? So doted over by her clueless parents that she can do no wrong in their eyes. That it doesn't really matter how spoiled, how, how self-entitled she believes she is. To just give her whatever she wants. But everybody else looks at her and says, well, and thinks, man, she's a menace. It's like the kid from, uh, from Charlie and the Choc- Chocolate Factory. What's her name? Um, the Blueberry? The Blueberry, yeah. Um, uh, is it? No, it's Violet. Violet, Violet Beauregard. There we go. Hey. Um, so, in other words, some preach, so let me sum that up. In other words, some, pre- some preach that because Jesus has died for our sins, we should live lives that are different, but if we don't, that's okay too. Not a big deal. Because after all, nothing we can do can make us righteous. But John is telling us this. Trust in this promise. Trust in the promise that he tells us in, in verse 7. Genuine Christians do become more righteous. Genuine Christians do become more holy. Genuine Christians do become more loving, more human, more selfless. God doesn't just forgive His people of their sins. He transforms His people from their sins. Listen, we we can't... um, uh, let me harp on this for just a second longer. We can't read uh, the verses that we like and highlight those and put those on Facebook and just ignore all the ones that we don't like. Okay, so um, let me just let me give you an example uh, of this really quick. Um, Ephesians. All right, yeah, I typed out here. Um, Ephesians two, uh, uh, verses four and five. But because of his because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Right, it's a great verse. That's, a, you know, that's one that's probably highlighted in my Bible. At the same time, we read uh, wasn't this week, but last week uh, in James. Um, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Both of those things can remain true simultaneously. And if we are only ever discussing, we're only ever talking about, we're only ever preaching one of those realities and ignoring, downplaying, flat out denying the other, we're not in biblical orthodoxy. John says it right here in this passage. Um, let's look at um, chapter 3, verse 9. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Being born of God brings righteousness. Everyone whom God graciously saves, that person is not just saved, not just forgiven, not just declared, declared righteous, not just given a status of righteousness. That person, God has promised, is going to be made over time more and more righteous. And then the next, very next verse um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't get more sobering than this. Um, verse 10. This is how we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. So, the implication. The good news is that God doesn't just save, He transforms. The good news is that God doesn't just come and forgive us and declare us righteousness, righteous, but He actually makes us righteous over time. He actually transforms us so that we are not, we don't, not, we're not just given Jesus' status, but over time and eventually we will be righteous like Jesus is righteous. But the implication of that is that because if it's true that all Christians grow in righteousness, it is also true that a person not growing in righteousness may not be a Christian. The fruit of our faith does not justify us. It does not save us. It does not make us worthy. However, while the fruit does not make us suitable for God's presence, being in God's presence by grace through faith does make us fruitful. All right, let's turn the let's turn the tide of this. Um, so, why is it? Let me go through not just not just from the text. How, why is it that we grow in righteousness? Uh, but why and how is it a spiritual guarantee that genuine Christians do and will grow in righteousness over time? Um, Verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Now, the, the, the NIV kind of it, it hides this word. Um, it, it kind of brings it out in C. In, in the original, there's, this, there's a sentence in a word. It says, behold, look, see. Uh, and then from there it says, uh, look and see, behold, lay your eyes on how great the love how great the lo- the father how great is the love that the father has lavished on us now literally that word um, that we've translated how great literally that is um, that means of what country so this is a word that was used uh, in in biblical times uh, by ordinary men when they were confused or surprised when they encountered something that was bizarre so when Jesus uh, when Je- Jesus calms the Sea of Galilee, remember the boats you know swaying going back and forth, and Jesus is asleep and he wakes up and he calms the storm. When he well, after he calms the storm, uh, what is it? What do his disciples ask? They ask, "What country is this man from?" 
And we have something kind of similar to this in the English language, right? If something is unusual, unfamiliar to us, something's confusing or surprising, we say that it's foreign. We don't mean that it's literally foreign, but it's, it's foreign to us. And so John is saying, look how foreign the Father's love for us is. Look how strange. Fix your eyes on this strange love. And there are two things, well actually there are more, but I have only two I'm going to talk about. There are two things that he specifically calls out and wants us to look at. And the first uh, is, is the rest of uh, verse 1 and going into verse 2. And it's that we are adopted. Um, see what great love the Father has lavished on us so that we should be called children of God and that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known. Um, John is telling us that no matter what you are currently experiencing, no matter how you are currently feeling, we are God's children. Now, John, I think, is it, it, he's certainly referencing the teaching and the theology uh, that God adopts us into his family. But moreover, more, maybe more important than that, he is referencing the, the very real and legal act of Greco-Roman adoption here. Um, when the Romans, so the Romans took adoption very seriously. Um, by law, a Roman uh, child who was adopted could never be disinherited. Um, by law, a Roman adopted child was bestowed all the rights and privileges of a biological child. By law, a father uh, that uh, a father had to call his adopted child his own. And the way this happened is the father would go before a magistrate, he'd go before the court, and when the when the adoption occurred. This is the decree that was, was declared on the child. They would, the judge would look at that child and say, you have been called child of X, and so you are. Sound familiar? John is calling to mind the adoption process in their very culture. That's what's happening between the Heavenly Father and his spiritual children. And John is saying, look at what strange love it is that Yahweh, that the creator of heaven and earth, would adopt you in as his own. In the Roman world, adoption was motivated just like it is today. It was motivated by compassion for the child. It was motivated by a desire to rescue and a desire to save that child, uh, typically from a bad situation, a bad circumstance, and place that child out of that bad environment, out of that destructive environment, out of that corrosive environment, and put that child into a safe, loving environment. And the same way, John is telling his readers that when the creator and the sustainer looks at their situation, he too had compassion on them. Prior to being children of God, which we're told in verse 2, we were, verse 8, of the devil. 
And verse 10, children of the devil. So it's not just that we had a good dad that passed away and a better dad decided to adopt us. We had a horrible dad. And the father said, I'm going to take you from that horrible situation and I'm going to put you into an incredible environment. Prior to our conversion, our spiritual family environment was diabolical and devilish. Regardless to the degree that we are aware of it, our previous spiritual father was proud of our pride, influenced us to sin, Our previous spiritual father kept us blinded to beauty, kept us blinded to the truth of the gospel. (coughs) Prior to our adoption, um, we were in a spiritual house that was full of deception, deceit, and darkness. Prior to our adoption, our Um, spiritual father was a liar that would tell us that um, that would tell us that that the only way to succeed in life is to look out for number one. Prior to our heavenly father bringing us into his family, our previous spiritual father um, was we were children of the devil and he told us that he loved us. Yet, but in reality, he just wanted to use us towards his own ends. And John is saying Christians grow in righteousness for this reason. They have been pulled out of that diabolical environment and they've been adopted into the very heart of God, into the very family of God, into the very future of God. Listen, this is, this is the ultimate narrative of the Bible, right? The ultimate narrative of the Bible is not that God loved you uh, so much that he goes out and saved you. It's that God defeats his enemy to save you. This is why Christians grow in right- righteousness. They're not in that environment anymore. They've now been placed in an incredible environment. There's this place in, um, in, Coloss- in Colossians 1 uh, that Paul talks about uh, this, kind of, this kind of amazing relocation uh, that happens uh, upon our conversion. Uh, he tells us that we've been delivered from the dominion of dark- darkness and we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Prior to our eyes being opened by the gospel, we were, under the, we were under the power of, we were under the realm of, we were under the influence of diabolical darkness. But God, rich in mercy, transformed you, relocated you, took you from this horrible environment and placed you into his kingdom, placed you into his realm, placed, him, placed you into this situation and this environment in which he is your loving father. And John tells us, sink your eyes into this foreign love. Get a glimpse that the father sees the children 
of his arch enemy, and he sends his one and only biological child to die so that those children might be saved into a better situation. The one and only son who lives the perfect and righteous life allows himself to be humiliated, to be tortured, to be shamed, and to be killed on a cross so that his father could adopt you and adopt me and swear to us in that place, I will love you as ferociously as I love my own eternal son. John says, look at that. Look at how foreign is that love. Um, So, why and how do we grow in righteousness? How is it a guarantee? Why and how is it a guarantee that Christians will grow in righteousness? Um, uh, One is that we've been adopted uh, from this diabolical environment into this uh, glorious heavenly environment. But secondly, uh, we have been completely reborn, rebirthed of God. Um, verse 29 to chapter 2, the very last, very last part. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And then chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. John uses this idea of being born of God like ten times in this letter. Um, oh, it's one of the most important aspects of his, mes- of his message. And he wants, uh, he wants you to know that you have been born of God. Uh, we have not merely been adopted into his family. We have actually been rebirthed by being born from the Spirit of God from above. The Bible teaches that spiritually speaking, right, Christians come to life at conversion. Born again is the, is the terminology we use. It's biblical terminology. Um, at, at our spiritual birth, the Christian's dad is God, and the righteous nature of, their, of, of, of that dad is planted in the Christian by the Holy Spirit. And John, so, so John's saying, fix your eyes on this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. God does not just pardon us from our sins. He moves us from death into life by His Holy Spirit because God implants His seed in us. Um, verse, verse 9, when, when we read, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him, the, 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 the Greek word there is sperma. Now, when we hear of that, when we hear that word, we think of sex. When John's, John's audience heard that word, they thought of the result of sex. John's talking about reproduction here. He's talking about, he's saying that the nature of God is actually planted inside the believer at his rebirth. As that seed grows, the believer becomes more and more like God. Not in terms of divinity, but in terms of righteousness. John is saying, this is why we know, this is how we can be assured that the Christian will grow uh, 
in righteousness. Spiritually speaking, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. And the Bible teaches that every Christian has an old self and a new self, right? Um, and the Bible teaches that, that every, every Christian has this old flesh. That's Romans 5, uh, where, Paul go, where, where Paul really expounds on this. This old self is decreasing. He's being put away. He's being put off. In fact, Romans 5, um, we're, we're told that, um, that this old self uh, is being crucified. Actually, it's Romans 6. Um, and, and he says, uh, for, Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that, um, let me start again. For we know that our old self was crucified, him, crucified with him, so that um, the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to, uh, to sin. Anyone who has died, that is, through this rebirth, um, has been set free from sin. The old us that loved to sin, the old us that was of the devil, Paul says, has been crucified. Now granted, um, the old self is not yet dead, but what Paul says is, he's not dead, but he's hanging on a tree. And his death is inevitable. By saying that the old, the old self was crucified, that the most lethal uh, form of execution, um, that, by saying that our old nature is crucified on a tree, it's a clear message to his reader that the fatal blow has been dealt. And John takes this understanding, takes this theology, uh, takes uh, this teaching, he says, do you see how great this love is? See, he's not satisfied with just forgiving us, forgiving us of our sins. He's not satisfied only with adopting us into his family, removing us from the tyranny, from the hell, and from the abusive relationship that we once had when we were the children of the, de- uh, children of the devil. Um, he's not just satisfied with forgiving us and saving us. Uh, he theologically, he spiritually, and he literally implants his seed within us. The Holy Spirit of Jesus lives inside his, the new self. And the Holy Spirit causes us to grow day in and day out. All right, let's, let's sum this up. Um, verse, verse 7, Dear children, kind of the, the crux of everything we're talking about today uh, comes here in verse 7, verse 8. Verse 7, um, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Um, but the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. John's message um, in this passage today and John's message in this epistle is this. Don't let anybody lie to you. Genuine Christians do grow in righteousness. Genuine Christians grow in righteousness for at least two reasons. Um, One, our God looked on us and he saw that our old spiritual father was abusive, was cruel, um, and was raising us in a kingdom of darkness. 
And then our God, uh, rich in, in, in grace, abundant in his mercy, adopted us and delivered us. He gave, us uh, he gave up his biological son that we might receive the benefits of being adopted into his kingdom. That we may receive the benefits of living and inheriting uh, his kingdom. But secondly, Christians grow in righteous, righteousness not because we seek to earn righteousness, but because God has implanted within us His Spirit. The nature that once knew nothing but sin is now on a cross, dying away, and God has rebirthed us with a new nature, one that shares the nature of God. Let's read it one more time. Dear Christians, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What's, what is, what's the devil's work? To get us to sin. To separate us from the Father. Um, to make us uh, not trust in or believe in the love of God, not live for God, to live for, our lot, for ourselves instead of for God. Um, and John is saying, Jesus appeared to destroy those works. How does Jesus put us back into a relationship with God? How does Jesus create in us a love for God? How, how does Jesus... Create, a, create inside of us a desire to live for God? How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? He gets destroyed on the cross. You know, ironically, the devil revels in the destruction of Jesus while at the same time the works of the devil are being destroyed in that very destruction. You know, the, what happened on the cross is, is that Jesus got Satan to go too far. You know, it, um, judo is it, uh, judo is the art of taking your opponent's momentum and using it, uh, using it against them, making them go further than they intended to go. Um, in Jesus, on the cross. Satan overplayed his hand. He went further than he intended. In the death of Jesus is the death of death. In the destruction of the Son of God is the destruction of the works of the devil. John says, sink your eyes into that. Be knocked off your feet because of that and you will grow in righteousness. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. Uh, we thank you uh, for having mercy on us. Um, we thank you for moving us from darkness into light. We thank you for implanting in us your nature and your spirit. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Forgive us for making light of your gospel. Forgive us for acting as if we don't. We only need a little bit of help uh, when, in when in reality we actually need this hero. 
forgive us for acting as, as if uh, we're saved and justified and now we can just do whatever we feel like. Would you, Holy Spirit, um, would you help us to stay centered on this gospel? Would you help us to stand fixed on this ground and not to be led astray in any way to shortcut uh, or, or short-circuit the totality of what you want to do in us and through us. Forgive us. Um, forgive me. Um, as I know, at times, I um, have led astray uh, by not holding these truths up, um, downplaying one, because it is uh, not as palatable to me uh, as the other. Um, would you um, help us? Would you give us the strength and give us the faith that we need to lean in to and to learn more about your glorious gospel? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.